Welcome to another episode of Reformation Roundtable. My name is Joe Stout, and in this discussion, we're going to be diving into the doctrine of limited atonement. We'll be hearing a lecture by R.C. Sproul on this doctrine, and then the roundtable discussion will follow the teaching. Now, you're not going to want to miss this discussion because limited atonement is the most misunderstood of the five doctrines of grace. And so because of that, it's often just kind of cast aside. Dr. Sproul talks a little bit about that in, uh, uh, when people say, oh, I'm a four-point Calvinist, or I'm a 3.5% Calvinist, or I'm this fraction of a Calvinist, or I embrace this fraction of the doctrines of grace. He, he talks about that and, and kind of talks about how um, limited atonement is not probably what you think it is. So we want to see a Reformed church start here in Lewis, the Lewis County area. That's part of why we're doing these Reformation roundtables. And, and we want to see a church that is unashamed of the glories of the Reformation, uh, a church that's eager and willing to carry out Christ's kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven, a church that's in love with God and understanding him, understanding him accurately understanding him accurately as revealed in Scripture, uh, in, in understanding that that representation in Scripture shows him as a divinely sovereign king. We want, to, we want a church that embraces that and understands that and sees that as good news. So if you'd like to join us in this vision, I would encourage you to reach out to me via SoundCloud, via the SoundCloud link, uh, or you could leave a site, uh, excuse me, you could leave a comment on the site, joestout.org. Or you could also even email me at joecstout at gmail.com. We'd love to have you join us. We'd love to have you be a part of what we're doing, of, of what we hope to see come to this area. Uh, with that being said, hope you enjoy the discussion, and we'll be back next week with more Reformational Theology. So we continue now with our study of the core doctrines of Reformed theology, and we've been looking at the uh, controversial five points of Calvinism, and we've already looked at the T in tulip and the U in tulip, and all that's left of the tulip now is the lip part. And we're going to start today by looking at the L of tulip, which stands for limited atonement. And I think of all of the five points of Calvinism, this is the one that is most controversial and engenders perhaps the most confusion and consternation of them. <clears throat> Our friends in the dispensationalist uh, camp have a, uh, have a tradition by which they tend to call themselves four-point Calvinists. And if you've heard that expression of four-point Calvinism, that usually means that there's a willingness to affirm four out of the five in tulip, and the one that, in which they demur is the L, or limited atonement. And as I said, there's a lot of confusion about limited atonement. And to try to straighten the confusion out, let me say what limited atonement does not mean. It does not mean that there is a limit to be placed upon the value or the merit of the atonement of Jesus Christ. It's uh, traditional to say that the atoning work of Christ is sufficient for all. That is, that it, its meritorious value is sufficient to cover the sins of all 
people. And certainly anyone who puts their trust in Jesus Christ will receive the full measure of the benefits of that atonement. And it also is important to understand that the gospel is to be preached universally. And in the sense of, an, uh, we, we talk about a universal offer of the gospel, and that's another controversial point. Because on the one hand, the gospel is offered universally to all who are within earshot of the preaching of it, but it's not universally offered in the sense that it's offered to anyone without any conditions. It's offered to anyone who believes. It's offered to anyone who repents. And obviously, the merit of the atonement of Christ is given to all who believe and to all who repent of their sins. Now, one of the traditional, again, ways of talking about this is to say that the atonement is sufficient for all, but efficient for some. That is, not everyone actually receives the full benefits that are wrought by Christ's saving work on the cross, namely those who do not believe. But so far, all of those distinctions do is distinguish our theology from universalism. And all who are particularists, that is, all who, Christians who are not universalists, would agree that Christ's atonement is sufficient for all and efficient only for some. And so that distinction between sufficiency and efficiency doesn't really get to the point of this doctrine. What this doctrine is concerned about chiefly is this. What was the original purpose, plan, or design of God in sending Christ into the world to die on the cross? Was it the Father's intent to send His Son to die on the cross to make salvation possible for everybody, but also with the possibility that it would be effective for nobody. That is, did God simply send Christ to the cross to make salvation possible? Or did God from all eternity have a plan of salvation? by which, according to the riches of His grace and His eternal election, He designed the atonement to ensure the salvation of His people. So that's what it has to do with. Was it limited in its original design? Or That's why, I'm, again, I'm going to have to fool around with our little acrostic tulip as I did with the T and with the U. I'm going to mess with the L as well. That's why we prefer not to use the term limited atonement because it is so misleading, and rather to speak of definite redemption or definite atonement, meaning that God the Father designed the work of redemption specifically with a view to providing salvation for the elect, and that Christ, though His death is valuable enough to meet the needs of everybody, that there was a special and unique sense in which He died for His sheep. 
that he laid down his life for those to whom uh, the Father had given him. Now, the problem that emerges from this technical point of theology in terms of God's eternal decrees and his ultimate design and purpose for the atonement is often discussed in light of, a, of several passages in the New Testament, for example, when it says that Jesus died for the sins of all of the world and so on, which incidentally, these difficult questions, I think, have been masterfully treated in what I think is the best treatment of this doctrine ever written, and that by the Puritan theologian John Owen in his book, The Death of Death. Please don't call us at Ligonier for that volume because we don't have it in stock. But if you have never read John Owen's The Death of Death, I strongly commend it to you. It is a magnificent treatment of the grace of God, and it is rich in biblical exposition and deals in great detail and with great brilliance with some of the difficult passages that we encounter in the New Testament. Now, one of those texts that we hear so often used as an objection against the idea of definite atonement is found in the book of 2 Peter, chapter 3, beginning at verse 8. We read these words, But, beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Do you feel the weight of this text with respect to this idea that in some sense, from all eternity, God wills that only the elect will receive the benefits of the atonement, which is what definite atonement teaches. And here the text seems to suggest that God is not willing that any should perish, but that obviously He's willing the salvation of everybody. Now this text is, is handled in different ways by different theologians. I have a friend who's a theologian in another camp who uh, has popularized the idea that God, in fact, saves as many people as He possibly can. He's done everything that He can do to affect the salvation of the entire human race. He's provided an atonement in Christ and has provided an offer of the benefits of that atonement to all who believe. But in the final analysis, whether the atonement of Christ affects their salvation rests upon some kind of human response, and God will not intervene to, in any way, uh, sovereignly bring a person to faith in Jesus Christ. And again, the appeal is made to this text that God is not willing that any should perish. Now, in dealing with this difficult text, there are some ambiguities with it that have caused the scratching of the heads of many biblical scholars and interpreters. In fact, if you get ten commentaries on 2 Peter, chances are you'll get ten different interpretations of this particular passage. And the problems have to do with understanding precisely two 
different words in this text. The first is the word willing, and the second is the word any. Now let's look at the first one. God is not willing that any should perish. Here is a specific reference to the will of God. And we know that in the New Testament there are two Greek words, both of which can be translated in English by the word will. Unfortunately, each of these words is capable of several different nuances, so when we're asking specifically what kind of willing is in view, you can't settle the question simply by looking up the Greek text and looking at your Greek lexicon to find out what is being used here. There are six or seven different ways in which the Bible speaks about God's will or His willingness. For purposes of saving time, let me just take a few minutes to look at the three most frequent ways in which the Bible speaks of the will of God. The first way the Bible speaks of the will of God is in terms of what we call the decretive will of God, or some people call it the sovereign, efficacious will of God. Others call it the ultimate will of God. And what we mean by this meaning for will or willingness has to do with that will of God by which God brings to pass sovereignly whatsoever He chooses to do. When God wills the world to come into existence, His willing of it makes it so. It is a sovereign decree that must needs come to pass. It can't not come to pass, and it cannot be frustrated by any outside force. And that's what we're talking about when we're talking about the sovereign decree of will. Now, let's suppose that this text is using this meaning or nuance for the will of God. What would it mean that God is not willing that any should perish? If the any refers to any person, and if we translated it to mean that God decrees that no human being will perish, what would be the obvious conclusion? If God sovereignly decrees that no human person ever would perish, then manifestly no human person would ever perish, and this text would then become the classical proof text for universalism. But again, the debate about the text is not between particularists and universalists. It's between parties who both affirm particularism, namely that not everybody is saved. And so then we look to other possible nuances to the word willing. Now the second most frequent way in which the Bible speaks of the will of God is what we call the preceptive will of God. And a precept is a law or a command, and the preceptive will of God refers to the commands that God gives to people. The Ten Commandments would be an expression of the preceptive will of God when God says, Thou shalt not have any other gods before me, and so on. He's setting forth His law. Now. We cannot disobey the preceptive will of God with impunity, 
but we do have the power and the ability to break this law, so that there is a sense in which the precept of will does not always come to pass, because people don't always obey it. Now again, let's apply this possible meaning to this text, that God is not willing in the preceptive sense that any should perish, meaning he doesn't allow or give his sanction or his moral permission on people when they perish. Now there's a sense in which that's true because since he commands all people to come to Christ, manifestly the failure to obey that command would be to violate his preceptive will. So I would say that that's a possible interpretation of this text, and there are reputable theologians who assume this meaning of willingness to this particular verse. I personally think it's somewhat awkward and uh, just doesn't make a whole lot of sense to say you're not allowed to perish, and I don't think that's in the context uh, even, uh, I think with the context it even seems all the more awkward. The third way in which the term willing is used biblically with respect to God is what we call His will of disposition. And here this is one of those anthropomorphic expressions that talk about the emotions of God, what pleases God, what causes God to be delighted and what causes God to grieve and that sort of thing. And we're told elsewhere in Scripture, for example, that God does not delight in the death of the wicked. That is, He, he doesn't get some great personal thrill out of sending people to hell even though he wills to do it. Just as a judge in a court may, for the sake of maintaining justice, be required to send his own son to a life term in prison, he would do it because it was the right thing to do, but he would do it with tears. That is, he wasn't getting any personal pleasure out of it other than the pleasure that justice was being maintained. And so in this case, it would be a reflection of God's disposition, meaning, as he says, as the Bible says elsewhere, that he takes no delight in the death of the wicked, that here God is not willing in a dispositional sense that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance. So those are the three basic ways in which this word willing can be used. And for me, which of these is most appropriate will be determined by the reference to the second questionable word, the word any. If, in fact, Peter is talking about any as referring to all human beings in this world, then I would come to the conclusion that it could only mean the disposition or the dispositional will of God. But I don't think that he is talking about any in this absolutely unrestricted sense. Anytime we use the word any, we're assuming some reference. Any what? Any of which group? Is it, it's certainly Peter doesn't say that God is not willing that any person perish. We have to supply that person as if it were tacitly understood. But is there any other possible reference to the any besides any human being?
Well, obviously, there are other possibilities, not the least of which is a particular class. You have a class here of people, and that word people makes up a, a distinctive class, and if I said any of that class, I would mean any person. Or I could have another class, a class called Jews. And if I spoke of any of that class, it would refer to anyone who was Jewish, or American, or whatever other group I would incorporate within that circle. I think, frankly, that what uh, Peter is talking about here is that group that is mentioned frequently in his epistle by the designation elect. Certainly, the Bible speaks frequently of the elect, and the elect make up a distinctive group. And the question is, is Peter here speaking about people? Is he speaking of the body of disciples, of which Peter's a member? Or is he speaking of the whole number of the elect? We remember in John's Gospel how Jesus mentions that none of those whom the Father has given him will perish and that they will all come to faith so that everybody in that group of those who are the elect are certainly going to be redeemed. Now, again, Peter is not specific here about what group he's referring to with the word any. But he's not utterly silent. If we look back at the text and look at it carefully, we read this in verse 9 of chapter 3. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward whom? He is long-suffering toward us. He is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Now, grammatically, the immediate antecedent here of the word any is the word us. And I think it's perfectly clear that what Peter is saying here is that God is not willing that any of us should perish, but that all of us should come to salvation. But we're still not finished with the problem, are we? Because now we have to ask, who's the us? <laughs> Well, again, in the broader context of his epistle, the us, I don't think he's speaking of all mankind indiscriminately, but the us or the we is a reference to the believers, to those people to whom Peter is speaking, which are the believers in Jesus Christ. And so I don't think that this text gets rid of the idea that God designed the atonement for a purpose which purpose by his d design must needs come to pass. I don't think we want to believe in a God who is a spectator of the drama of redemption, who sends a, a Christ to die on the cross and then stands there holding, crossing his finger, hoping that someone will take advantage of it. Our view of God is different from that. Our view is, is that the plan of redemption 
was an eternal plan of God and which plan and which design was perfectly conceived and perfectly executed so that the will of God to save his people in fact is accomplished by the atoning work of Christ. Well, that's settled. <clears throat> they have. Yeah, it's cool. <laughs> uh, yeah. I think one of the good things that RC does is, because um, he's got 20 minutes, 22 minutes, he doesn't try to do too much. You focus, I mean, that essentially was an argument. It was basically addressing the argument against limited atonement. It wasn't really necessarily laying out the argument for limited atonement as much as saying, hey, you know, this is the argument within this group of particularists. Mm -hmm. And um, it was helpful to kind of park there for the, for the discussion because those kinds of distinctions that he was able to draw out are really, really helpful. To, to look at those three different types of, when it refers to the will of Christ, or the will of God, what exactly does the will mean? And then who is the any that he's referring to? Because it was helpful for me to, real, to, to remember that wherever, wherever you are on the theological spectrum of Arminian or you know, Calvinist or Reformed, you are not a universalist. And, and Christianity is not... Is not littered with universalists. <laughs> there's, there's not there's not many universalists within the within the Orthodox faith, if any. Um, and so we're all we all are particular redemption people. It's just how are we particular redemption? Are we particular redemption because that final bit of sovereignty lies with man and his choice to come to God? And you know God gets it up to this point, but then he leaves that last little that little you got to take the medicine kind of thing, or is it all him? You know, is it all him from start to finish, uh, you know, root and branch? Him, ta him talking about that friend of his, or, you know, the, the, the men in the other group, <laughs> just the point, you know, where he says that, well, God just isn't, isn't able to convince them fully. And right. it's like, as soon as you go there, it just blows up, mm -hmm. you know? I don't know. To me, it just blows up in his face right there. It's like, God right. is not able. Is there anything that God is not able to do? Mm -hmm. uh, let's look at the definition of God and maybe really evaluate that. Yeah. Can, can we take a moment maybe? And because I think what R.C. did was he, like he commented, he went and said, hey, this is the argument against it. But what is... What is the working definition of limited atonement, maybe as you understand it, as we understand it, and then kind of maybe work at the discussion from that angle a little bit? Because I think that, yeah, I think, I think it's kind of important to have that clearly defined, okay, what is it? And I know that's like a really deep thing, and maybe it's just something that I just need to go and kind of read a little bit further, because, yeah, so I, I want to kind of maybe... Yeah, he kind of assumed you were already on board with it. Mm -hmm. You know, he like he didn't develop an argument for it as much as I'm not really even looking for an argument for it. I'm well, just like, okay, what is your working, what is your definition. working definition, and where did it where does it come from out of scripture? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I think uh, I think his his reference to Second Peter is just one of the one of the main arguments 
um, against limited atonement because of the words used in the scripture there. And many people would read that and think, oh, well, this is clear. God doesn't want anyone to perish. Everyone's saved. So is he talking about universalism? So I think limited atonement is saying, well, we don't believe in universalism. We don't believe that God aims to save everyone on the planet, but can't. Mm-hmm. We're, and it, it comes down to more of that particular redemption of, well, not only do we think and believe that what God says in the Word means that not everyone is saved, but that there are a particular people group that God has reserved for His glory that are to be saved. And that those people are determined ahead of time by God's infinite wisdom and pleasure. So I guess when I think of limited atonement, the question that pops up into my head is are we talking about limited grace? And I, I guess from a, from a functional standpoint, I, when, I, when I think about God being all-powerful, all-capable, all-able, the, the, the way that the phrasing comes off when we say limited atonement, it comes off as a currency exchange. It's like I have a limited amount of this stuff that I'm giving out and I'm not capable of giving more of it. Mm. And I, I see it as I, I see I see it as like this really strange I see it as a limiter. Hmm. Like kind of how you were talking about it's like, well we're limiting God because we're saying that he, you know, that well, he can't save. When I'm not suggesting that we're, I'm, I'm, I'm of the camp that this is universalism either, by the way. But I, it is. It seems really challenging to me where we're saying, "Hey, I'm going to limit. I'm limiting the working grace, or the the grace that emanates from the cross." Hmm. I think he clarifies that in the beginning, though. He in says, the, "There is no limit of value or merit of Jesus Christ." Let me clarify one yeah, thing yeah. right off hmm. the bat. That's what he says. And we I think I wholeheartedly agree with that. Yeah. Because I think that's where you get in trouble. If you in, if, in, if in, you try in, to argue this from a limited atonement side and say, well, we're limiting the efficacy uh-huh. of the grace or the the you know this value of Christ on the cross. No, we're not saying you're not saying that it's limited in its scope, that it can apply to everyone. We're saying that God chose those people and is limiting its power to those people, not that it could be. <clears throat> hmm. Yeah, but, they're, they're, so we're running it through a funnel, basically, to try and... I, I mean, yeah, I guess so. Yeah, but to... Something to like that. To point it at, you know, okay. This gets off, this, this spins off the argument of the, <clears throat> why did, you know, good things happen to bad people, or that why does God choose for certain things to happen to certain people, you know, and, and the way I get out of this is it's... It is. It comes down to ultimately that God has. He has that choice. It is up to God, and it's always been up to God. And it's never been. <clears throat> when I was explaining Tulip as a kid, they would come up to this one and say, "Limited meant it's limited by what God wanted to limit it to, not that He couldn't do more." But He was. And this gets then it touches on the whole predestination thing of why did He, you know, foresee or predestine these elect, as He pointed out. Um, uh, and that's something that uh, I know we'll, I think people will always struggle with because, well, why? Well, that's God's good, you know. Uh, his good pleasure. His good pleasure. Yeah. And he has the right to do so. And I think that's where it gets muddy for a lot of people because we're so used to, but 
I want to be in charge of this stuff, putting ourselves mm-hmm. in God's spot. And once you start doing that, that muddies the water, and now you're you're creating a limited God. Mm-hmm. And um, <clears throat> so it's um, th- to me, it's it really comes down to yeah, God's good, His free will, will to do that, His good favor. And I'm, I'm definitely on board with that. That's not the. I guess that's not the the issue. Is more of the like the the way that the phrasing comes across is the the efficacy issue. Do you, how many kids? You have two kids. Yeah. Right? So when you had your first kid, you were limited in your love for mm-hmm. that kid to one child. And you think like, man, I love this kid so much. How could I ever love another one like I love this one? And then number two comes along and you're like, whoa. <laughs> my, my love for number one didn't go anywhere. It's still the same. In fact, it's, it may even increase. But now I've got a second one. And now my love for these two children has even grown. But it's still limited to those two children. You don't love the neighbor kid like you love your own children, uh, you know. And I think when we think of limited in our current lexicon of words, we think of limited as... A boundary or weak. Yeah, yeah, kind of weakened. But limited just means that there's boundaries to it. And so in in the particular case of atonement, what does atonement mean? It means making God and man one. That has been accomplished already before the world began. Mm But it was accomplished with specific people, and there were limits on who those, those people are, and they're limited to the elect. Now, as he said, it's sufficient for everyone. If he wanted to save everyone he could, for whatever reason, his own good pleasure, he chose not to. He chose to save some and not save others. But that atonement, that making one of God and man, was limited to those people that from the foundation of the world. Once again, I like Percy's definition of definite redemption. Mm-hmm. Or particular yeah. redemption. That's <laughs> it's, okay. it's, it's more, I think it's, maybe it's more timely. Yeah. You know, well, I it's, think more, it's more precise. It, I think it's more precise. The acrostic is helpful to get you through. Exactly. <laughs> it, doesn't really, it doesn't really do it. Yeah. 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 I mean, because I think almost on every, every aspect of the acronym, they've, they've had alternative Mm. You know, mm-hmm. uh, nomenclature. He's a, his, yeah. his, 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 uh, his better version. Radical right? corruption, for instance, yeah. radical gravity right. or whatever. I remember getting around this uh, when we were in college. They, they would talk about you know the whole idea of limited. Really, it, it burns people because they, they feel like, well, how do you you know how how can God do that? And where we came back to it was. What we don't know, though, is, you know, are you elect? Are you elect? Are you mm-hmm. elect? Do we, we know that yet? You still have that, that choice mm-hmm. to, you know, follow Jesus. Absolutely. And so it's, it's uh, like you said, it's not that he can't, you know, save more people. It's just that he knows it's limited to those people that he foreknew. How would you know you were chosen beforehand? And that starts making your brain do the twist thing that hurts. But um, it's, mm-hmm. it's not as limited as we're putting the words on it, I think. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? I don't know if I'm saying that very well, but yeah, well, yeah, you know, well, yeah. Well, I'm sorry, Luke. Go ahead. Well, why did R.C. Why did he speak to what he spoke to today? Um, you know, he didn't come out and, and just kind of lay it out and define it specifically. He he chose that portion of Second Peter, I think, because we've I think we've already agreed that there's universalism. Then, as far as Christians go, there, there's universalism here, and then there's particular redemption or atonement and and even the Arminians are particular mm-hmm. they'll even say that okay that Christ has done enough for everyone but not everyone is going to be saved you know they, they say that 
Uh, Christ died for every human, but the justification of no one is certain. So, you know, now, we're, now we can plug in assurance, too, now when we talk about the Reformed aspect of things, that um, the biblical definition is kind of like, I, I even wrote one down here, it says, Christ died only for the elect, thereby ensuring the future justification of the elect through faith. Um, so there is, a, he, God had a particular group of people in mind, and that's always been the case. Here we, you know, and then you start breaking down what is what does foreknowledge mean? What does it mean when you say God foreknows you or foreknew you and all of that? That's why I think it's it's almost uh, you know I don't know about a four point Calvinist. I don't know how I don't know how they can you can consider it's anybody it all ties a four together. point. It, it all it, one 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 part of the acrostic come is diminished or, or deemed uh, not appropriate or wrong, it, the whole thing just mm. crumbles and falls apart. I think R.C.'s actually said that and mm. his other, other things. So um, the, I, I think he addressed that because for me, whenever I read about limited atonement or particular redemption, the issue, it comes to a, a, some scriptures that talk about all or the world. You know, for God so loved the world, okay? And I think if you, I think if you go into like a concordance and look at the word all, and you look at the context of the word all in there, often or most often, you can't replace all with every human being on the on the in the world. You can't for all time. For, yeah, yeah. For if there, the word all is there, and it's it's relating to people. I think the 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 thing that. Uh, folks in the New Testament are particularly talking about hmm. are the fact that now you know in the three books that that really hone in on justification Romans and Galatians and what's the third one uh, Ephesians we start to see a real um, addressing of the Gentiles now because before it's been a lot of the Jews you know Jewish Jewish and now we're talking about an inclusivity that heretofore has not really been the case now in the New Testament particularly again Romans Galatians and Ephesians Paul is now talking about this inclusivity of the Gentiles and geez, I think it's uh, I even wrote the, the scripture down um, if I can find it uh, John 10 15 and 16 I lay down my life for my sheep, mm-hmm. and in verse 16, and I have and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. Mm-hmm. Um, oh gosh, I, can't I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. You know, in I think in the mind of Christ, there's a particular group of people he's talking mm-hmm. about, and it kind of harkens, kind of distills down on what this limited atonement business is. I've heard people use the the term effective atonement, definite atonement, particular atonement, effective atonement, and so it's so one of the things R.C. brought up is he said, when we when we think about if you're maybe more of the Arminian persuasion, you think about God, God's atonement being effective for all with with the provision that we believe. So you know we we're the cofactor in the enzyme, so to speak. The enzyme doesn't work unless it has that little protein cofactor. What that assumes is that God sent Jesus into the world, not actually knowing that anyone would be saved. 
if you if you take it all the way out to the end to the corners, push all if you push that logic out to the corners, there's a chance Jesus could have come and saved no one. And so we know from uh, scripture that Jesus did not come to save <laughs> no one. He came to save his sheep. The sheep hear my voice and they know my voice. And I was discussing that with Elizabeth today, and, and she was like, Yeah, but some people would have believed, of course, because the gospel's so beautiful. And we know that Paul says that the gospel is death yeah. to those who are perishing. It's it's a it's, it's a, foolishness. It's foolishness. Yes, it's yeah. it's like this awful stench to them. Mm-hmm. So you don't naturally respond to the gospel. That does that's that's an unnatural thing to respond. When you have a response to the gospel, you're doing something contrary to your own nature. And that's it's the sovereignty of God working itself out, the effective atonement of Christ coming to pass. How much but, of the oh you keep getting interrupted. I was going to say, just notice that the sheep hear his voice, not the goats. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Mm, interesting. We're taking compassion on the goats. So. <laughs> the final, final judgment. Um, I, got, I got to throw those, you know, sheep, sheep goat <laughs> jabs in there once in a while. How how much of how much of the um, how much of the four the four point Calvinist problem was mine that I just had two minutes ago. And now I'm like, I, I, I'm, to- I'm like completely and totally on board with, you know, effective atonement mm-hmm. or, you know, whatever. I, but, but this, I, this notion about that there's just the word, there were, there's only, yeah, the word, there's almost this revulsion about the, uh, the limited right. aspect of God's power. Like mm-hmm. I'm not, that, that, I guess that was the, let's issue. get rid of it. Yeah. So that was the issue that I was, that I was taking I guess I was taking with it. It was this, this yeah. notion, like, okay, well, God, God's all powerful. Like, He could save everybody. Now, I, I'm like in full agreement that He has chosen to save some, hmm. but He can fully, He's fully capable of saving all. So, um, anyway, I don't know. I I wonder how many of the the arguments from the four point are just like they don't that 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 hasn't resonated. It hasn't hit them yet. Like, oh, okay, that's what you mean. Hmm. Okay, well. Because you're right. If you don't take, if you take it with that definition, yeah, yeah, then everything falls into place. It's like, yeah, okay, this totally makes sense, and this is quite clearly the God of the Bible that we're talking about now. Mm-hmm. Um, it it doesn't. I guess that was where I was really like, if it's an all sovereign, all powerful, all knowing, all present God. Hmm. How can how does can not you, equal limits? Yeah, like there, there, there's no limits to this to this guy. It, it almost makes it almost makes the arguments for universalism make sense. If, yeah, if you take this only as the proof text and you don't yeah. and you ignore a bunch of other scripture, right. it almost makes sense because well, God is powerful enough to save everyone, and He's not willing that anyone should perish. So there you go. It's this, the other the other verse that came up that uh, I was uh, I don't remember where I pulled it up, but it was the First uh, uh, Timothy. Uh, chapter two is another one. Uh, it, a lot of Christians know that one just because it talks about there being one mediator between God and man, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. But preceding that says this is good and it's pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator, but who desires all people. And then I guess the cast question, well, you know, that kind of actually work. That's this reads in such a way where, hey, R.C. kind of described mm-hmm. this word. This is, uh, what was the word that he used for it? It's, um, uh, oh. His disposition? Disposition, yeah. Is, is, dis- mm-hmm. is, is dispositional. 
right? I've, I've also heard that explained, or I, I think the argument that's persuasive to me is that it is God's desire that all men be saved, but it's not his only desire. Mm-hmm. And that there are certain desires that he holds higher than that desire. And because he, because you can have, you know, kind of a hierarchy of desires, like he wants all everyone to be saved or because it's his, like Barcy was saying, he doesn't take pleasure in sending anyone to hell. Um, he also desires justice to be, be maintained. He desires his glory to be proclaimed. And that trumps or, or uh, you know, exceeds his desire that everybody be saved. Well, I'm still trying to, I'm still, still trying to figure this out. But the, one of the things I've, I've settled, are settling on, and I'm not in stone yet, but God has, has a desire, but God also has a purpose. And I think, I think there's, there can be a distinction between what God desires and what his purpose is. Hmm. And I don't think they need to be in con- conflict. You know, in other words, God's purpose is to glor- for glory hmm. and Christ to bring glory to God, glory to the Father and the Father to bring glory to Christ. Mm-hmm. Now, if we look at universalism and if God, if God just, because he's omnipotent and omnipresent and omniscient and all the omnis, if he, if he desires everybody to be, sa- be saved, then why aren't they just saved? Why were, why were we created and why was sin even allowed to mm-hmm. come into this, into this world? Um, you know, I think then we step back and start looking at what what's God's purpose here. I mean, and then you then you then you end up kind of migrating back to Romans chapter nine and so and Romans chapter ten and some of these other places in the Bible where God says, you know, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, mm-hmm. you know, and I will harden whom I will harden. And you go, wow, okay, and we start thinking about all these things. Um, when you were when you were talking, Andrew, I was thinking of in John seventeen and in verse six and nine. It says Jesus said, talking about him being the high priest and the mediator, I have manifested your name, talking about the Father, to the people whom you gave me out of the world, out of mm-hmm. the world. Mm-hmm. Yours, uh, yours they were, and you saved them, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Verse nine. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. I mean, these things start to add up after a while. And I think that, you know, when you go back and look at the Canons of Dort and, and the Remonstrance and all of that, and the terminology they're using, you understand what limited atonement refers to. But I can see how, you know, you can see over the centuries how you get to this point where we need to define this and we need to be precise in our in our definition mm-hmm. because this seems to indicate that God has some limitations and really you know uh, most Calvinists I know would say God can do whatever he wants whenever he wants yeah you know? they're much more in that camp yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so. well, I'd, I'd be curious to know like in that in that verse in Timothy when it says that he desires like how close is that to his will and the actual Greek word of that will that R.C. was talking about where he said, well, you know, it's really not that clear. There's like six or seven different meanings and then, hey, here are the three most important. And even in the verse that he pulled, the ESV translates that to wishing. Yeah. 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 Which which is, I think, is kind of interesting. That really strips it of 
De, de, the the you know kind of that um, Declar- yeah, 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 the declarative the decretive yeah decretive will decretive yeah. right. right it would definitely mean, not mean decretive yeah right? so that's why I was kind of like yeah I, I could see uh, how those arguments can be made when you just look at that but mm-hmm. if you don't know the background or you don't know the root meaning of it and then to know it's like, I don't know any Greek and I can't I don't know any Hebrew and it's like rely on all these commentaries from people who understand it and know how it's used in different contexts to know that all that matters, I guess. Mm. Uh, I guess it's a driving point for me to look to some of these people who know more than I do when I'm looking for explanations. So I have a practical question. Um, and it's not, it's not a loaded question. It's not like I have an answer. Uh, sure. Yeah. I mean, I have some thoughts and I know you guys have some <laughs> thoughts too, but when we talk about, um, let's just say we decide, okay, limited atonement, effective atonement, we'll just call it effective atonement, is true. We believe it. How does that affect the sharing of the gospel? How does it affect our declaring the universal call of the gospel to an unbelieving world? Does it change our, does it change how we give people Jesus? Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You're, it's, a, it's an obedience issue. It's, a, it's an obedience issue, right? So it's not my, it's not for me to know who is saved and unsaved. Mm-hmm. It is God's sovereign will over who will be saved and not saved. And I can have an opportunity to participate in the blessing of watching people become brothers and sisters in Christ. I guess if I, because I totally agree. My question though is, not does it change our our the command to go do it does it change how we do it does it do we are we do we change at all the you know the the romans road dis- discussion of bringing people to, to to meet jesus does it change the language that we use when we're sharing the gospel with our neighbor i guess that's more my question not should we share the gospel absolutely we should matthew 28 all the way does it change it at all and maybe some context would be at Calvary Chapel, um, most, most years they'll rent a booth at the fair, and they'll, they'll preach the gospel to just anybody who'll listen. Year. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Uh, but they'll preach the gospel to, to anybody who's passing by. They're very Arminian, or, or, or far more Arminian than, than Reformed. How they preach the gospel, is it going to be different are they going to use I think it has to be but how is it going to be different when we preach the gospel that's I don't know that there's a difference in how you preach that other than um, I'm trying to think here of you know, I, I agree with I was thinking exactly the same thing as Andrew is you know yeah no of course you preach the gospel because it's it's commanded by Jesus to preach the gospel and to teach all nations teach the peoples, but does that change your delivery? I mean, what does that mean? Does that mean you ring a bell when you when you talk, or does it mean you slam your hand on the Bible when you're preaching the word? Like, the gospel is the gospel. To me, to the unbeliever, or to those who are, you know, maybe have, have that inkling of God working in their heart, the gospel is the gospel, and it's it's the free truth of Jesus, and only after do you come to know Christ and learn the intricacies of the gospel, I think you get to a point where we're at, 
where we realize like, wow, God has such a working glory in our lives. Mm-hmm. So does that necessarily change how we, how we present mm-hmm. that to them? I don't think so. That's my initial response it to that. It shouldn't, right? Do you tell people, hey, Jesus loves you? Well, that's a different, that's a different question. <laughs> well, no, well, I mean, that's what the, I'm not talking so much about delivery. because Jesus that's desires be... that the whole world be saved. <laughs> yeah, it, it says so in the Bible. <clears throat> right. Well, I mean, and so Jesus died for you. Do you tell, do you promise that to everybody? Spurgeon says that is a riotous <laughs> thing to just leave hanging. Mm. Jesus died for you. Because mm. a lot of people may believe that. This man named Jesus got up and said, I'm dying for you. Jesus died to save so sinners, <laughs> right? So okay, yeah. In the in the the, the minutia there, yes, I guess there is a difference. Mm. Uh, a difference in whether you leave it up to the the individual's decision, not knowing, or mm. do you? I mean, yeah, I would phrase it in the terms such that I believe in mm. the Reformed faith. But yes, yeah. Jesus died for sinners. I don't know if Jesus died for you. Jesus died for sinners. Mm. Jesus died to save the elect. Jesus died to save, you know, his own sheep. And his own sheep will hear his voice. And right. you put it in those terms, I don't go out and, I don't know that necessarily means, um, you know, is it is it really that bad to say Jesus died for you? I guess, I don't know. Yeah. You know, I go back to we don't Just know. See, so you say Jesus, Jesus died for you, you're willing to take hold of it. You know, because there's that, that reciprocation there. Um, hmm. And so, I mean, he did. He died for everybody. Um, but Everybody that would believe? Everybody that would believe, hmm. you know. Um, and Is that a sin of omission to leave that out, though? So the Spirit does <laughs> something yeah. in a person when they hear about Jesus um, dying for them. Would you it run with necessarily just... an instantaneous change? He may have to hear it two or three times mm-hmm. before that settles the issue for him. So that what you tell him, while it's important, it's not the end of the story. <laughs> I used to remind me of that phrase I heard when I was a kid. It was a uh, share the gospel and sometimes use words thing. Hmm. You know, where you're just, you're being an example because it's not, it ultimately is up to what's God, God's hmm. pleasure. Hmm. And, um, so, so I don't know how biblical that is because Romans 10 says, how will they know unless someone tells them and how, yeah. you know, and well, how I, beautiful I, are the feet of those who take the gospel? Yeah. You yeah. know, I, I, I'm not saying that good works is not vital, but faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Because I've had people that just rely totally on their do-gooderness. Mm. But, they, but they go and they do something, and I'm going to tell you, there are a lot of good people out, a lot of people out there doing good, 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 thing, good mm. things who, who, who are God-haters. Mm. You know, they're doing it for, for whatever their motivation is, it's certainly not to bring glory to God. And although there's a benefit to be elicited there and come out of that, mm. If God's not glorified, I would I would contend it's an abomination even. Mm-hmm. That that we would esteem someone for a good work uh, when God's the one that should receive the glory for it. So uh, and I'm not I'm not trying to be argumentative here. I'm not trying to be I try not to be contentious 
anymore mm. anyway, but uh, <laughs> I used to be one of those cage Calvinist types, but mm. I think I've been delivered from that. But I think... I think, I think the, you know, preach the gospel at all time, use words when necessary. I think the reason why there's wisdom in that is that um, trust God to bring about salvation. So you get on an elevator and you got 30 seconds with a person. You don't necessarily, that's not necessarily like you're morally obligated to share the gospel with them in 25 seconds. Well, it, cre- it creates the, I guess, the, yeah, the, the, that's a, I like how you put that because it, it creates that paralysis by analysis. We're overanalyzing how do I perfectly phrase mm-hmm. this when it ultimately is God that's directing that. So, you know, <clears throat> simply saying, you know, Jesus died for you. Mm. How is God going to use that? Mm. And I think that this is where the minutiae, the, the difficulty of, of playing with God's ideas uh, gets so tricky because um, it's it's God working through us. And that's a, a, a very, in a way, hands-off kind of thing in trusting Say okay, I'm going to deliver this. So if you're at the if you're at the, the fair, how would you phrase that? Um, I think sometimes people and I'm, I'm guilty of this. I know of okay, here's my my chance. Somebody's asking me about this, and I overthink it, and then stop or freeze mm-hmm. from that. And I think that's that's an abomination, mm-hmm. right? Just not saying anything because I'm so worried I'll say it the wrong way. Mm-hmm. I guess that's where I'm using that phrase. It kind of, but I get what you're saying yes, too. Sir. And I, I have a, I have a little card I like stuck it on my Bible. I got this order salutis from uh, John Murray's uh, Redemption Accomplished and Applied. So I was, I was reading and I was writing this stuff down. You know, effectual calling, what it is in the Scriptures, regeneration, faith and repentance, justification, adoption, all that. And I'm, I, I think the point I want to make is, is if. If I encounter someone and I whip this out, it's going to really hamstring me because I'm going to have all this stuff in the back of my mind. You know, is God, is Mike elect? Is he one, is he, has he been effectually called? Is it appropriate now for me to even begin to bring up the, start talking about the gospel, start talking about, you know, you're, you're, you're depraved. I wouldn't say it that way, but I would. Totally. I would. I would make it a total. <laughs> but you know, to begin to make the overtures, and I think there's there's these encounters we can have. If you run into a booth of Calvary Chapel people at the at the fair, I'm going to expect a certain thing from them. If I'm just walking by and I'm and I happen to live on this earth long enough to have encountered some some believers or whatever, when somebody approaches me and I see Calvary Chapel, I'm going to go. I'm going to expect them to talk. You know broach certain things they're going to ask me certain questions and things like that but an encounter now maybe you maybe you make some kind of overture that allows you to expose something and then see how they respond to it Hmm. you know I I might have shared this with you guys I'll be really quick but you know when my cancer moved into my spine so now I'm back I'm back to nuclear medicine I'm back to for more radiation and the lady that took care of me two years earlier 37 treatments, came out, she goes, Mr. Doyle, I'm really sorry to see you back here. I said, yeah, your name is Sheena. I said, Sheena, I'm, I, I wish I didn't have to be back here either, but I said, it's good to see you, but, but I said, I said, but you know what? Um, and she had, a, she had a training with her, an intern with her. I said, Sheena, I said, I said, I serve a merciful God. I said, he, he's allowed this in my life now versus 15 years ago when I would not have been able to cope with it when my only response would have been to be terrified to die and to drink. 
I said, what a merciful thing for him to, to allow it now in my life. She, you know, it didn't, it didn't allow us to get into the gospel because that's what, that's the only reason I was saying it because God is merciful mm -hmm. and he loves me and he's, he, I'm prepared or whatever. I'm, I'm good now. I'm in remission and all that. Mm -hmm. But that was an opportunity just to kind of see if she would open the door or yeah. whatever, or you know, you know, I got this thing going on. Maybe I think statements like that can really impact people, and maybe more than you even know. And then later down the road, you know, mm -hmm. she might be, she might be talking to a friend about, oh my gosh, you wouldn't believe the thing that, that Les told me yeah. when he came in for treatment. That's you know, true. what is up with that? Yeah. You know, that type of stuff. I, yeah. I think I think goes goes a long ways. You know, <clears throat> Ron, you you started when you started saying your thing about the person maybe needing to hear it several times. I just missed the very first part of what you were saying. Can you? If you can go back and <laughs> rewind the tape there. Do you remember kind of what... <laughs> were, you, were you kind of... Well, go ahead. Well, I guess the point I wanted to make is that uh, hearing the gospel the first time may mean nothing to somebody. Mm. But it's important they hear it. Yeah. Until the Holy Spirit acts in their lives to change their hearts, um, all we do is say things mm -hmm. it's, and, and it's an obligation on our part to say those things when we have the opportunity but the the fruit of it is out of our hands mm -hmm. yeah mm -hmm. that's really good yeah I would love I would love to be I would love to be taught more on on that I actually have a book by Packer J.R. Packer on evangelism and the sovereignty of God <laughs> that I haven't read it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's excellent is it good yes yeah, I, I know one of the one of the things that I've I'm kind of mulling over in in terms of making sure that I'm speaking truth about God when I'm sharing the gospel um, is focusing on His kingship, focusing on the fact that the King has come, and all the world should follow Him. And you're part of the world, and you should follow Him. And if you come to Him, He promises He won't cast you away. All who come to Him will be accepted. And so there's. I know that's true. I, I, I don't know if they're elect. I don't know mm -hmm. where they're at with the, from the foundation of the world. And I'm never going to know. And that's not for me to know. But I know Christ is king. And I know he is calling this person to follow him. And that they should respond to that. And mm -hmm. if they do, they, they give glory to God. And he's not a way to God. He's the way to yeah. God. So you could say Christ died for you? Uh, yeah, exactly. I mean, I think... Um, I would, yeah, I would probably couch it a little bit more carefully than that because I, because I do think this matters. If there's one takeaway from the discussion on definite atonement, is that it matters. Um, it it doesn't necessarily matter for my salvation whether or not I have it figured out exactly right. But I want to speak truthfully about God, and so I would say that God died for everyone, for anyone who comes to Him. Christ's blood is effective for washing away their sins. So if you come to him, you won't come to him unless he calls you, but you won't come to him unless you choose right now to come to him. And later on, you'll realize that it was God calling you, but you need to make the decision now to yeah. follow the, you know, choose this day whom you will serve. Mm -hmm. I want to piggyback on something that Ron said here about the idea of, you know, the hearing the gospel and, you know, like it could mean nothing and you keep hearing it. Um, in, uh, in, uh, second Timothy and, uh, uh, three 
and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for, wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus. All scriptures breathe out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. The scripture isn't necessarily limited in terms of its scope of being exclusively about salvation. There are benefits that can be had from somebody, you know, and so when we throw that stuff out there, it might not stick that first time, you're right, but I think it's really important to, I think sometimes we can kind of harness things or, 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 or pull back a little bit because we don't want to cast pearls before swine. But at the same time, I think that there are other benefits that, yes, this person might not benefit from, you know, the saving grace of God, but maybe sort of that common grace that comes out of Scripture, maybe it does something that brings glory to God in another way. And so by presenting the gospel, you're, do, you're, you're providing that. And so, I don't know, I, that, that for some reason that just kind of stuck out when you were, when you were talking about that, so... In, yeah. So Les, in your story about um, that you told to the Less. nurse, huh? Oh, go ahead. Um, so if I would have been sharing the gospel with you, I mean, could you say right now that Christ died for you? I know He did. Okay, so twenty-five years ago, if I'm sharing the gospel with you, how could I not share that with you? Um, that Christ died for you. How could you not share that? Yeah. I'm not sure I understand what... Uh, well, what, what you don't understand is that, how do I know if you're elect or not? So, oh, absolutely. I agree. So, so, I mean, I could share that to, to answer your question. I could share it with anybody. Hmm. Christ, so, Christ died for you, but it's not my job to figure out if, I mean, for... Did, for did, did I... Did I give you the impression that that's what I thought? No, I'm just saying that I think that the answer to this question is really quite simple. Uh, you know, even the thief on the cross at one point in time was hurling abuses at him. Mm -hmm. And at some point in time, he changed his mind, so apparently... About 30 lied. seconds later, he's <laughs> like, oh, wait yeah. a second. Uh, I'm just saying that, I don't, you know, it's, yeah. it's a kind of a funny question mm -hmm. you brought up compared to this limited atonement thing, which... Um, yeah. And the thing about this limited atonement, or that passage you brought up, it, it reminds me of when you and I battle about oh, pedo-baptism or something. <laughs> and, and you have what I would consider fairly vague passages that kind of refer to it. Mm. And I go to it and say, it seems like the whole New Testament is pretty clear about baptism. Mm. But that's our difference. And... It's the same thing. Go to Ephesians 1. I mean, he's really clear about election, mm -hmm. predestination, and I know we're all, we're all good there. Mm -hmm. Those are very clear passages. And it's true that this in uh, what he brought up in uh, Peter there was uh, definitely worthy of mm -hmm. uh, looking at the questions and whatnot. But um, I wanted to share one thing out of Ephesians. Mm -hmm. That has to do with that uh, predestination and stuff. That's, um, I think, pretty good. And I think it has that uses the word adoption. I think that a lot of times we don't think of. You know, when we think of adoption in America, we think of adopting little kids, and we're out there doing a good work, doing a good thing. We're helping them out. We're saving them. We're whatever. And and I don't say anything of that facetiously. 
But when he says uh, one chapter one verses uh, four and on, just a little bit, just just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love, he predestined us to adoption as sons to Jesus Christ to himself. And when you go back and you look at the idea of adoption back in Roman times, they adopted people at 20 to 30 years old. And they adopted them because those, those were um, people that they thought, this is where I want my family to be, uh, to endow the things I have with my family with them. Because for whatever reason, my son is dead. My son is worthless. And so he won't bring on and continue the line of the family and the things we have going. And so the adoption here that they're talking about, and that I think Paul's talking about, that God is doing with us, is that he has chosen us for the foundation of the world, and he's chosen us for whatever his reasons were. Um, but I think it's because, um, I think it's because that, uh, not that he's limited, but he has limited it to whoever he's chosen. And, and so it, it doesn't seem, maybe Ron and I, because we're old, we've kind of settled some of this stuff, but it's not that complicated. Uh, and yet it is. Many of the things you guys, I feel, have already said is because he's chosen, you know, he made the vessel, he chooses the vessel. He created everything, so if he doesn't choose it, who am I to say, well, that doesn't seem quite right. You hardened Pharaoh's heart? Well, what's with that? <laughs> and our Job, you know, Job, as he finally figured it out, as God explained to him in about the last two, three chapters of the book, he's, and Job's going, I don't know what I was thinking. I get it now. Yeah, of course you're in charge. Well, uh, if, if you finish verse 5 and, and in the 6, I think he kind of, after it talks about adoption, for the purpose of his will and for his glory. I mean, it yeah, kind of answer, you know, puts the hmm. dot on the eye or whatever. Yeah, period and, and just the last thing, so I publicly won't be a giving you too hard a time. I mean, I just, <laughs> yeah, I, I just wouldn't even worry about it. I'd say, you know, I don't know mm. the guy at Starbucks. I talk to people about yeah. the Lord a little bit now yeah. and then. Uh, actually, far more than they're interested in. And it can be very brief, but I'm certainly not going to go, I'm not sure if God died for you or not. But let me tell you about some of the good things, just in case you're elect. And I know we weren't stumbling onto that sure. approach at, at all, but to me it's kind of like, oh, whatever. Mm -hmm. I seem like he died for, probably died for last or something. <laughs> yeah. And I'm just good with that. I just don't, no. I don't, I don't get too hamstrung. I get a little mm -hmm. bit kind of like, oh, boy, I sure wish I knew the scriptures better a lot of times. But uh, You know, I had a, an Arminian pastor talk to me about, um, what well, he, he was actually talking, the, talking through the um, parable of the sower. And in the way he interpreted the seed on the path, he interpreted that as the gospel being um, delivered in an unclear way, that Satan will come and steal the gospel away from people. And so for him, presenting the gospel extremely clearly was, was like critical to the success of the gospel. Mm. And, and so for him, it was like, how do I, you know, how do I communicate it clearly so that the Satan can't steal it away from this person? 
And so I don't believe that. I believe that the Word of God, and he, he would too, but I believe the Word of God is never going to return void. It's going to go out and it's going to accomplish what it's supposed to accomplish. Its purpose, its purpose exactly. And so when we're sharing the gospel, it's not, I, I'm just, the only reason why I'm bringing this up really is I don't want to mindlessly repeat a, a chick track if the chick track is not being biblical. You know, mm-hmm. if you've ever read the chick tracks before, he's a hardcore Arminian, but it, there could be some really good value in, in the way he's presenting the gospel in some ways. But, but I want to make sure that I'm being theologically consistent when I'm mm-hmm. preaching the gospel to people. So, of course, never saying like, well, I'm going to catch what I say because I don't know if you're elect or not. I don't know if any of you guys are elect, but I believe you are. I don't know it, though, because I'm, I'm finite. And so that means that since we're finite with everybody, how we present God to them, I think that there is ways that we should, we should maybe strive for in terms of speaking truth about God. But also, I think we can try to be persuasive. We should try to be persuasive. Even though we know that God's, God's doing the work, you know, maybe our persuasiveness is how he's doing that work. And, you know, Paul tried to persuade Felix to become a Christian. And we should try to persuade people to become Christians too, even though it's God's effective work that's ultimately, that ultimately is the result. Yeah, and Paul said in 1 Corinthians, the message of the cross is foolishness for those who are perishing. I mean, so... But see, we're like you said, we're not the arbiters of that. We're we're just to be, you know, when you when I talk to I've talked to pastors before who, who may have been in kind of a dry spell or something. I said, you know, not that I'm wise or anything, but listen, from what I understand, God doesn't want God doesn't want you to be successful. He wants you to be He wants you to be faithful. And if you're being faithful, that's, that's all that mm. all that really matters. And I was thinking of uh, something Spurgeon said about this limited atonement business. I'm paraphrasing, huge. But he said, you know, there, there are some in the camp, when we think about our Armenians, the, 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 vi- the visual may be a very wide and welcoming bridge that only goes halfway to heaven. Mm-hmm. Whereas the, the reformed aspect of things would be a, a narrow bridge that goes all the way to heaven. Mm-hmm. You know, kind of hearkening back to there's this this offer for everyone, but the justification you need you need to appropriate it hmm. or whatever. And I I really struggle with that word. I, I think that it, I mean I agree with that assessment, but I think when it, when we hearken back to the idea of us preaching the gospel, in no way do we need to you know try to direct our the gospel or you know the sharing of that and yeah. I think with anybody. And so that's to me is kind of a clear like hmm. God doesn't want us to try to narrow in on who deserves right. it. Who oh, doesn't, no. obviously, no. right? And I yeah. so you know you preach the word to whoever and, and but, encouraging but, and encouraging right. and using truth, but mm. not getting hung up on how you're presenting. Mm. I don't think I don't think getting hung up on how you're presenting the gospel because of some of that, as long as you're speaking truth, nuances and words, I would agree with <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, that. There's, you know, there's good in that, but I think getting wrapped around the axle too much on that is just going to hinder your sharing the gospel with anybody. One of the things that Paul does when he's speaking in Athens, that's I've always thought of it as a really neat rhetorical trick. Not a trick is probably the wrong way. It was obviously inspired by the Holy Spirit to do this, but 
you know, they have all of these false gods, and so they have their unknown God. And so he says, well, let me tell you about the unknown God. He's like, this is the one, this, you've been worshiping this unknown God, let me tell you about it. Well, that was obviously he was just kind of doing something clever to get them to, to visually understand there's a God that you don't know about. And I'm going to tell you about him. Well, that was very persuasive. That was persuasive to a lot of people. And that wasn't just, you know, him mechanically reciting a, the, the Romans road. That was him kind of adjusting to the situation and, and being dynamic. And, Absolutely. and I, think, I think we should maybe strive for that. But, but also, also it's not a, it's not a, um, you know, it's not a, uh, the Charles Finney was popularized a lot of the, the psychological aspects of getting people to, to come to Christ. So he, he popularized the idea of altar calls and the anxious bench and, um, you know, those kinds of things that are meant to put men on the spot and give them kind of a peer pressure to convert, which God can use it. And, and he has used it. He's used it in a lot of people's lives. Um, but are we substituting psychology for the truth of the gospel? Not saying necessarily we are. I just don't want to do that. <laughs> you know, I, I was talking to my son, and I never can remember if I shared this with you guys or not because I talked to a lot of people. But my son's not a believer. He's a wonderful young man. He's going to be forty in June, and he's just he's just the best. But he See, that's, he, that's he, how he, father's he, talking about. He, he does, he does <laughs> but, but he does. He's not a believer. And I remember a few years ago, he and I, he and I were sitting in a. a my, my wife, I think, was in. Uh, I think she was in Africa on a mission or something. But anyway, my son said, "Hey, Dad, I'm gonna come down and hang out." So he came down. We had a hot tub, and we were in the hot tub one evening. And we were just sitting there and shooting the breeze a little, listening to some music. And I, I don't know what came over me, but I said, "Son, I said, son, if if someone called me right now." and said, we have your boy, and we're gonna murder him unless you come take his place. I said, do you think I'd come? And he goes, yeah, I think you'd come. I said, son, I would leave the phone hanging on the court. There would be no negotiation, there would no, be no appeal or anything. I said, I would be on my way to take your place. I said, but here's the thing. Someone, someone's already done that. Hmm. So in other words, like, like you were just talking about Paul going, let me tell you about this unknown God. I said, let me tell you about this this one, this man who's already done that mm -hmm. for us. And you know, my son was respectful. He, he heard me out. But, you know, I don't believe that the Holy Spirit has done that work in his heart yet. Mm. But I, I, I'm, I'm the woman who won't leave the guy alone, you know, at midnight. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to, I tell Christ all the time, Lord, I'm not giving up. You're, you're gonna. I am gonna make your ears bleed because I am begging and pleading for you to save my boy. Mm. You know that's that's what we're supposed to do, irrespective of what kind of fruit or what anything else. We're just supposed to be obedient to that, yeah. no matter what. And if God desires everyone to be saved, we're supposed to share His desires. We're supposed to have the burdens that God has, and that's you know that's one of my prayers. Lord, let me let me share your burden. Let me. Let me have that too. And I'm going to tell you, I'm going to confess it to you gentlemen, that isn't the case all the time. You know, it isn't. I'm just being honest. Well, I'll think you know. Yeah. Yeah, I'd, I'd do that with Joe, but I'm afraid he'd go, mm, I doubt it. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> well, would it be a quick death or? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Now, what are you thinking about here? That's right. <laughs> Does he have his car with him? <laughs> Anyway, yeah. 
that's I'm gonna it's it's that's encouraging for me to go read that book by Packer because I I do want to I do want to hear more. It's not a real thick one, but man, it's really powerful. I think. Yeah. And and you think about limited atonement too, and how it affects our 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 understanding of assurance of ours our own assurance, and they're they're tied together. I think, and it's it's a it's a nice aspect of limited or particular redemption or whatever we want to call it to consider and think about think about that as well. Yeah. Has anybody read that Death of Death book he recommended? Oh, the John Owen? Yeah. I, I've been wanting to, honestly, and I, I haven't even purchased it. I started it. I have it. I started it a couple it's years heavy. ago. It is hard. I heard it. Right. It <laughs> is hard to read. I heard it is. I wrote it down. I probably will fail at it. I only got two chapters in, and I was like, oh, man, what am I in for? <laughs> So uh, those those Puritans were a whole different like breed of human, I think, in yeah, terms yeah. of their their, their <laughs> mental capacity. Well, I mean, the English is different. It's yeah. old, it's old English, English and it's it, it was pretty pretty rough. Hmm. So I haven't. This is him just mentioning that again has got my wheels going. Like, oh, I need to tackle that again. Yeah, yeah I might I'm I'm take another crack at it. Thing. It's your literary Mount Everest. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> well, I have that. Is it Scouting or whatever? The Life of God and the Soul of Man or something mm. like that. I've tried reading that. I mean, they've, they've even Xerox the the old. I mean, the the the. S's are the look like a oh, yeah, devil. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I'm exactly. trying to read this. I'm going, man, I don't <laughs> think I got the brains to do this. Give me a Dr. Seuss, you know, preach the gospel or something. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah uh, one of the things I picked up from Ligonier's uh, last, I think the last time they had their, their conference was, um, it was a book by Calvin that had been retranslated uh, into kind of modern day English. Just, just it, I mean, it read like, like you would, you're reading John Piper or something like that. And it, it does, it does help to to kind of basically unfortunately it's they had to dumb it down for, for me <laughs> but it does help to to get get it in because I've I've struggled with some of those older books if they don't if the if the author's a little on the drier side. Yeah they're it's gotta yeah, struggle through. A little difficult.